0: Verses 1 through 12. Continuing in our series in the Sermon on the Mount and specifically in the introductory section to the Sermon on the Mount, which is called the Beatitudes, we will read verses 1 through 12 again of Matthew chapter 5. And let's give attention as we continue to hear God's Word. Matthew chapter 5. grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. And let us seek the Lord's illumination on his word now. Let us pray. Our God, we do thank you for your word. We have stood at attention as it was read. Now we ask that we would sit with illumination as it is unpacked. We pray that your spirit would take the things that we are going to see here today and press them deeply into our hearts that we would be changed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll start this morning by asking you a question. Have you ever inherited anything? Have you ever received anything by way of inheritance? Any of you have ever inherited anything? Sometimes it can be, it can be really sweet. When my, um, when my grandfather died years ago now, I inherited from him my grandmother gave to me this really old Swiss Army knife that had probably been bought in Switzerland. It was from my great-grandfather. Some years later, not so long ago, um, a good friend of mine in 2012, a dear friend of mine, died very suddenly. And his wife gave me a number of his books. And I still have many of those books today. My copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis belonged to my friend Don That's very sweet. But as we're sort of hinting at already, inheritance is often tinged with sadness, is it not? Because in order to inherit something, the person who was the previous owner or possessor has to relinquish the claim. Now, sometimes that can happen because of just a major change of life circumstances. But most of the time when you inherit something, it's because what has happened to the previous owner? They have died. That's often how inheritance works. And so, like verse 4, which we looked at last week, blessed are those who mourn, this verse today, verse 5 of Matthew chapter 5, which is our sermon text for today, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This verse, like the one we looked at yesterday, is realistically pointing us to both the beauty and the sadness of life in a broken world. And that is a reminder to us, friends, that the Sermon on the Mount, this whole section, Matthew 5 through 7, is not some kind of airy-fairy idealism, nor is it some kind of stern moralism, but it is a supernatural realism. It is an invitation to the life of heaven that begins now amidst the brokenness of life. We live in a broken world. We live in a world that has been broken and poisoned and, and ravaged. By sin, human rebellion against God, selfishness toward others. And yet, it is in the midst of that broken world, this broken world, that our Lord Jesus invites us to enter into the life of heaven. And he begins the Sermon on the Mount, this great invitation to the life of heaven, with a series of blessings, which we call the Beatitudes. And we have seen, and we will see again today, that these blessings are not rewards that you can earn. They are gifts that Jesus Christ earned and that he offers to us. But how did Jesus earn them? He earned them by bearing that brokenness, by suffering. And that is a reminder to us that grace, even the goodness of Jesus Christ in a broken world, grace always has jagged edges for Jesus and for us. And that is particularly true as we come to this verse today, which says and holds out to us the hope of the meek inheriting the earth. Now, right away, as you read those words and simply react to them, you're probably feeling a mix of strange emotions. First of all, the idea of inheriting the earth. It's one thing to inherit a pocket knife. It's one thing to inherit a couple books. But to inherit the earth, the whole thing, doesn't that sound a little hard to believe? Doesn't that sound incredible? And the idea of, of, of meekness, well, the word meek, it even rhymes with the word weak. Is that what it means? Honestly, put them together. The meek shall inherit the earth. And what are you thinking? What is, your, what is your gut reaction to those words? What does Jesus possibly mean when he says the meek will inherit the earth? I want to suggest to you that the best way to get a grip on this verse is actually to process it backwards. And so we're going to start by talking about the final phrase, inherit the earth. Now, kids, if you've got your outlines, this is where you want to kick in, right? White outlines, fill in the blank. We're going to go through this step by step so that we understand this verse and we can see how it connects to our lives, even here and even now. The first thing to see, number one, is that when Jesus talks about inheriting the earth, he's not pulling this phrase out of thin air he is tapping into a hope that has haunted the human race since Eden, the Garden of Eden. Go back sometime and go back to Genesis chapter 1, and what does God say to, to, to Adam and Eve, to the first human beings after He has created them? He says, fill what? Fill the earth and subdue it. What does that tell us? It tells us that the whole earth was originally meant to be the inheritance, the heritage, the possession, the treasure, the treasure. Of the human race. Now, what happened? Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve decided to try to be God for themselves. They decided to set up on their own and be their own, the center of their own lives. They rebelled against God. And we're often familiar with the idea that those who rebel against God cannot inherit heaven, but the reality is even worse. Not only did humanity lose heaven when they rebelled against God, we lost the earth. Adam and Eve were expelled from Eden, and ever since that time, the hearts of human beings have been haunted by this deep sense of loss. And you feel it in your own experience if you're paying attention. Haven't you all ever, haven't haven't we all at some point or another felt sort of a ripple of that deep loss in our regular experience, where something that you expected to be there, something that was part of your your childhood or your your story, something that you identified with home is gone? Years ago, when I was a teenager, I, we lived on some land next to some, a big piece of land owned by my, my grandparents, and some friends of mine and I, when we were teens, we would go camping in the woods. Any of you ever done this with your friends? So much fun, right? And there was this place in the woods where I loved to go camping because there was this massive oak tree, just probably about easily as big as the whole platform on which I'm standing, if not bigger, just this massive oak tree, and I loved to camp right there. And then one time when I was a little older and I had kids of my own and we're walking in the woods, I said, oh, I'm going to show you the tree where we used to go camping. And you know what? It was gone. Because some years prior, um, for the sake of raising some, some financial resources, they had allowed lumbermen to come in and lumber the trees. Now, that's what trees are for. I'm not against wood. <laughs> but it was, it, was a, it was a painful moment because a part of my home was gone. And I could no longer share it with my own sons. And similarly, when we lived overseas, after coming back from living overseas, we're visiting some of the same places where we had lived just a few years earlier. But the experience for me, it was like these places were still there, but now it was like looking at one of those sepia-toned, faded photographs, you know, in the old photo albums. I don't belong here anymore. It's no longer home. Whatever that place was for me is gone. That's what we're talking about here, that deep ache that we all feel in different ways, it is that desire that Jesus is tapping into here when he speaks about inheriting the earth because that phrase, inherit the earth, is pointing to the deep longing that all people have, a deep longing for a home that cannot be lost. And the second thing to see, brothers and sisters, as we go through this passage today, is that Jesus affirms our desire for a home that cannot be lost. Be lost. We're going to talk about some problems that we have in processing that desire. But the second thing to see is very important is that Jesus affirms that desire. If it wasn't a good desire, if it wasn't a good thing to desire a home that couldn't be lost, Jesus wouldn't say it as part of the blessing. But he says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. That blessing is still out there and it is still good. And in fact, what you need to understand, again, to fully understand this text, is that this promise, the promise of inheriting the earth, is nothing new in the story of the Bible. It has been part of God's rescue plan from the beginning. Go back to your, book, to your Bibles and go back to the story of Genesis. After the flood, after God judges the earth and Noah and his sons come out of the ark, one of the first things God says to them is, fill the earth. After the incident with the Tower of Babel, which we're going to come back to in just a moment, when God chooses Abram from all the families of the earth, He says, go to the land that I'm going to show you. And throughout the story of Israel in the Old Testament, the descendants of Abraham, if if you just limit yourself to the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, just those three books, the phrase, the land, appears 263 times. Now, many people see that and they go off the rails and they think that God's going to have some kind of different plan for for Israel than for all believers. No, 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 you're missing the point. That that, that promise of the land given to Israel is a thumbnail of the much larger plan which is to bring the restoration of the whole earth to God's people. All that God was doing in the land of Canaan was just a thumbnail, a pointer to the bigger plan. As he says to the Messiah in Psalm 2, verse 8, ask of me and I will make the ends of the earth your possession. And that same promise is what Jesus carries into the New Testament, not just here, but everywhere when he speaks about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the book of Revelation, the new heavens, and the new earth. It's all about the promise of the gospel, that aspect of the gospel where God is going to bring back a home that cannot be lost. Jesus says the desire is blessed. What's wrong is not the desire, but how we frequently pursue it. And that brings us to number three on your outlines, kids. Since that episode with the Tower of Babel, since Babel, number three, we have tried to build this home for ourselves. Between the end of the flood and And between the call of Abraham is is the story of the Tower of Babel. And what was going on in the Tower of Babel in that story? If you haven't read it in a while, the basics are this. All the people of the earth, all the descendants of Noah and his sons, they're all still speaking the same language. They are all under the command that God had given to Noah, which was to spread out on the earth, fill the land. But instead of obeying God and instead of spreading out and filling the earth, they said to one another, and they could all speak the same language, so they all organized, and they said, Let's not spread out and fill the earth. Let's gather together and build a city. And let's, they say, this is quoting from Genesis 11, 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city. Let us make a name for ourselves. What were they doing? Well, they were seeking a home, but they were seeking it in the wrong way because they were seeking it in disobedience to God. What happens then? A few chapters later, in Genesis chapter, chapter 14, you have the first war recorded between various kings. And that's what's been going on ever since. History is a dustbin of empires. It is a horror movie of selfish wars where one people or another is trying to inherit the earth for ourselves. The desire is not wrong, but the way we do it is all wrong. Trying to save ourselves, trying to build our own heaven. And even Christians, yes, even Christians here at Covenant Presbyterian Church are not immune from this babble impulse. Now you might say, now hang on, Pastor, look, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't conquered any empires recently. I, um, I don't even like to play risk. Okay, fair enough. But don't we all try to build our own little heaven here on earth? Maybe we don't say, Come, let, let us build ourselves a city. But have any of us ever said, Come, let us buy ourselves a quote, forever home in the country? Let us build ourselves a forever ranch in the suburbs? A Christian should never use that phrase, forever home of any place in this world, but we do, don't we? And it's because we are trying to build heaven for ourselves. So the problem is not the desire. Jesus is blessing the desire, but Jesus is challenging our hearts, and the question we need to to ask ourselves is, what is the right way home? What is the right way toward that home that can never be lost? And Jesus says that the way home is the way, this is where it gets really surprising, the way of the meek. Now, what does that mean? Number four on your outlines. The way home is not to seize power. The way home is to wait on God's promise. In fact, it's very interesting. Um, When Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, he is, in, in essence, simply rewording Psalm 37, verse 11. Psalm 37, verse 11, you don't have to turn there, but listen, this is Psalm 37, verse 11. The meek shall inherit the land. What's Jesus doing? He's picking up that same promise, and he is rewording it and saying, the meek shall inherit the earth. Now, what does it mean? What does Jesus mean? What does it mean to be meek? Well, one of the verses that we confessed in our responsive reading earlier, just a few verses before that verse, a few few lines before God says in Psalm 37, the meek shall inherit the land, he says, those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And so if the meek shall inherit the land, and those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land, then the meek are those who what? Those who wait for the Lord. And so this gives us the first part of our definition. What does it mean to be meek? To be meek is not to seize power, but the meek are those who wait for the Lord. Now, what does it mean to wait for the Lord? Fair question. The first couple verses of Psalm 37, which we we all read together, tell us, but I'll read them to you again. To wait for the Lord means, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb, but trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell on the land and befriend faithfulness. Psalm 37 verses 1 through 3. And so as a first definition of what it means to be meek, our first indicator of what it means to be on the path toward that true home is this. The meek are those who don't fret, and they don't envy, but they trust God, and they wait for God to fix all things. Brothers and sisters, friends, there's an immediate challenge to us here today, is there not, in these words. Are you fretting over the schemes of evildoers in this world? Are you sitting here today, or were you sitting at your computer Monday through Saturday fretting about the schemes of evildoers in the world? Maybe you're not fretting about evildoers in the world, but you really want some of the cool stuff they've got. Are you envious of the prosperity of those who fade like a leaf? Do you really wish you could build your own babel in this world? That's the challenge. Now, with the challenge comes another question. What about Christian responsibility when God gives us power? Christians are not to seize power, but what about when we are given power? We live in a society where we have the right to vote, where we have the right to organize. What should we do as believers? How can we be meek when we have actually been handed power? How should we use power in a way that is still compatible with what Jesus is saying here? Number five, the answer is the meek are those who use power only to serve, never for self salvation. And I'm not making this up because there is a person in the Bible who is described as meek and who also is powerful. And I think you know his name, Jesus. That, the first words that we read this morning to enter into worship, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am. The word is gentle in the ESV, but the same Greek word here. Jesus is also described as meek he is gentle the the, the word is capable of multiple translations but it's the same word and what that shows us it shows us one who is rippling with power and yet still following the way home is it not and so it's very important then that helps us understand meek does not mean weak was jesus weak you're talking about the one who faced the storm you're talking about the one who kicked out a legion of demons You're talking about a man who could banish disease, who could raise the dead, who could walk on water. He is not weak, and yet he is meek. Meek does not mean powerless. Meek means never using power for your own comfort. Think about this. Jesus raised the dead, but he wouldn't turn stones into bread. He raised the dead to serve others, but when he himself was tempted and uncomfortable, he would not turn stones into bread. When he was surrounded in Gethsemane, he tells us he could have called in an airstrike. Now, he didn't say airstrike. There's no Greek word for airstrike. But he says in Matthew's count, he could have called in 12 legions of angels, and trust me, that's an airstrike unlike the world has ever seen. But he didn't do it, because the meek don't use power for their own comfort. They use it to serve others. So then how how should we as believers, as followers of Jesus, use power if it ever comes to us? The basic principle is the same. We use it to benefit others, never to build our own babel. Should we seek justice? Yes. Micah 6, verse 8. But never revenge. Romans 12, 19 through 21. May we look to our own interests as long as we also look to the interests of others. Paul says, Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. But the meek never use power just for ourselves. We never use power just for our own comfort. We never use power to build our own new babbles. How can you know if you're crossing the line? How can we know, how can I know if we're getting to the point where we're crossing the line? There are two tests. Two tests of your own heart. How can you know if you are crossing the line when God gives you authority, when God gives you resources? How can you know whether you're being meek or whether you're falling back onto the path toward Babel? Number one, do you rationalize disobedience to God? God gives us a lot of clear commands as to how believers are to live in the the world. But do you rationalize disobedience? Do you say, well, I have to do it this way this time. I know God normally says that, but in this case i got to do it this way. God has given me this authority, and yeah, I, you know, I should use it to serve, but I really just want to use it to hit back. Are you justifying disobedience to God? Think about the people who had built, built the city of Babel. That command from Noah and his sons had been passed down to them. But in the moment, what did they say? Well, maybe we'll obey God later, but for today, this time, it's okay for us to do our own thing. It's okay for us to defy the Word of God so that we can build for ourselves a city. That's one test. Do you rationalize disobedience to the clear teaching of Christ? Second test Are you doing whatever you're doing? Are you using power? Are you exercising authority? Are you doing it to try to make yourself feel safe? Oh, my friends, that is such a clue. Because sin, mark this, sin always tries to hijack our desire to feel safe. Those built, the people who built the city of Babel, can't you hear them saying it? God says disperse over the whole world, but the whole world is a wasteland and a wilderness after this flood. And it's too dangerous. But maybe if we build ourselves a city and we all stick together, we will feel safe. And sin still does the same thing today. That's why we so often misfire when we have authority. It's why we so often sin when we're trying to organize and even engage. It's because we are acting out of a desire to make ourselves safe rather than to serve. We are trying to build Babel rather than trying to genuinely benefit others. Sin will always try to hijack your desire to feel safe. Mark my words. But also understand Why does sin often, why does it work when it tries to hijack that desire? Sin gets its power by hijacking a deeper desire. And when sin is trying to hijack your desire to feel safe, it is really tapping into that deep longing you have for a home that cannot be lost. Isn't that what the deep desire is? Why why do we want a home that can't be lost so that we can be at home, so that we can sit in a chair and say, now at last I'm safe. And sin says, I know how to get that. Just got to bend a couple rules. I know how to get that, but you're going to have to take things into your own hands. Sin will hijack your desire to feel safe. It's tapping in to that desire for a home that can't be lost. So what should you do? What should I do when we feel tempted in this way? What should we do when we find ourselves tempted to give in? What should I do when I am tempted to try to seize control or to sin in the exercise of power, when I am tempted not to serve others, but to serve myself. Well, there's there's only one way to handle this, brothers, friends, sisters. The first step is to confess, to confess to God that we are not meek. Is there anybody in this room here today, sitting in the pew or standing in the pulpit, who can say, yeah, I got this, totally meek, nailed it. Don't raise your hands. Because it ain't you and it ain't me. We need to confess that by nature and by habit, we are God-doubters and we are Babel-builders. Confess it. And it's hard, it's hard to confess things about yourself, but isn't it, it's also really wonderful to just finally get over yourself. Confess it. Dear God, I am a doubter of your promises. Dear God, I am always trying to build my own Babel. You can say that to the Lord right now where you sit. It's good for you. You should do it. Confess. But then, secondly, look deeply into the goodness of Jesus. You really want to push the sin out of your life? You've got to expel it with the goodness of the gospel. Look at Christ. Look at what he did. Look at that passage that we read first. By his death and resurrection, Philippians chapter 2 says that Christ has inherited what? The earth. God has bestowed on him a name that is above every name and at the name of Jesus every tongue will confess, every knee shall bow. In other words, Christ has been given the earth. The nations belong to him. How did he do it? Not by by grabbing the weapons of the world and fighting back. Not by self-assertion or self-protection. Not by calling in the airstrikes of Gethsemane. But through meekness. Paul says he did not grasp his position of authority as the Son of God, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, was born in human form, and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's all meekness. And then Paul says, Therefore, because of that, God highly exalted him. It is through the meekness of Christ that the world already has been inherited. And it is through the meekness of Christ in us, God working in us what God has worked for us, that believers in Jesus can also find the way home. Because after saying all that awesome stuff, Paul says to believers in Philippi, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you, both to will and to do his desires. And so we're almost done. No little girls screaming today saying, is it over yet? It's okay. I'd rather have them here saying, is it over yet than not being here? Praise God. We're almost done. But I want to ask you this. Are you tired of sin taking over by promising to keep you safe? Aren't you tired of that? Doesn't it happen too often? Sin just takes over by saying, oh yeah, do this and you'll feel better. Do this, you'll feel safe. It never works. It always is ruinous. Are you tired of that? You want it to stop in your life? Do you need forgiveness for all the ways it happened yesterday or the day before? Do you want hope that it can actually start to die? Jesus meets the desire for a home that cannot be lost, and he does it in a better way. He does it through meekness. He does it for us, and he will do it for anybody who desires and asks. And so, the third step first step was to confess. I hope you all did that. Second step was to look at Christ and how he won the victory, how he won it for us, how he'll win it in us. And finally, the third step is to put your heart in the hands of Jesus. We're gonna sing and just we're gonna sing at the end of our time today. We're gonna to sing a hymn that says and ends with these words: Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. You do that, and Jesus will make you meek. You do that. And you don't have to listen to that voice of sin that keeps saying, do this to be safe, do this to be safe, do this to be safe. You can say, no, I don't have to keep, number six, kids, I don't have to keep grasping for a home I cannot keep. Jesus has already won for me a home I cannot lose. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are going to let no promise unfulfilled. We thank you that you have not eradicated from our hearts that desire to find a a true home, our true home. But we thank you that you are willing to challenge the sinful impulses in our hearts that would seek that home in a self-centered way. Help us to reject that. Help us to embrace the better way of Christ, that it was through his meekness and his gentleness that makes us great. Help us to trust his promise, to wait on your promise. And when you give us authority, when you give us power to use it, not to build a new Babel, but to benefit others, to serve and not for self. Help us to preach this promise to our hearts that we don't have to grasp for a home we cannot keep because Jesus has already won for us a home that can never be lost.